The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Hey, it's episode 15. It's only taken us 27 years to get here. Three years, but still, it's you know. A, it's, a, it's, it's been a long, strange trip. And I want to say, before we even get going, that uh, we have a new producer on board. Is that applause I hear? Oh, yeah. Applause. We have a new producer, Alana Cody, has come on board to uh, produce the show, which assures uh, me and probably you that uh, we're going to be uh, turning out episodes a little bit faster than we have. Boy, I sure hope so. But yes, with a producer, now someone to uh, ride our asses to make sure that things actually get done. Uh, yeah, I, th- I, 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 I sense the winds of change. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's actually working so far for, for me. And I feel like, you know, it, it actually takes a little bit of pressure off of me because I feel like you and I don't have to coordinate yeah, anymore. It's, it's wonderful to have an extra person to make that it happen is. and to get our guests square and to make sure that everything's lining up time-wise. It's it's fantastic. Thanks, Alana. Thanks, Alana. Thanks for coming on the, on the team. So, Ben, what's happening right now in Hollywood? <laughs> well, Hollywood is awesome right now in that uh, I went to sleep one day and woke up and all of my heroes were sex monsters. Wow. Uh, I don't mean to, to laugh about this, but if you're not laughing, you're probably crying and Boy, uh, th- there's not too much to be, to be said about this other than it's probably good that there's some house cleaning going on right now and some people who are going to go to movie jail for a very long time and yeah. maybe even regular jail. Yeah, I think some of them are going to go to jail jail and then maybe, you know, one or two of them might be able to rehabilitate themselves after they've like, you know, <laughs> given given themselves 10 years in actual prison. Uh, or maybe they just, you know, go direct Shakespeare in the pen. Yeah, who knows? We, we, we may never hear from some of them again. Anyway, they may never work again. I like, feel like we have to acknowledge that this is actually probably the biggest news out of Hollywood for this year for sure and maybe many other years. It, it's like we're in politics now or something. It is a little bit. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily pertain to cinematography, but it does pertain to our entire business and, and kind of a... A, a shadow that actually has been over the business all along. I hate to say it because some really talented people are going away, but good riddance. We need to set a better example for our business among other businesses and not be a bunch of, you know, sexual predators. We, we need to drum them out. Sexual predators need to know there's no place for them. That's right. And uh, agreed. It's, it's just a little, dis- it's not a little disturbing. It's extremely disturbing. It's extremely disturbing to think that people were run- that people are regularly, misusing power but i also if i found out that this was happening in the banking industry or the textiles industry or the chemical industry or the big pharma i'd be like yeah it, it's going to happen around around people who have a lot of money and power and can hold it over somebody else <laughs> so on hey the, on this light note <laughs> on, the, on that on that happy note oh jesus i mean well because if you don't laugh about this you have to cry about it there's like there's almost you can do both yeah there's there's almost no uh yeah i guess that I, we're, we're trying right now you know who else needs to get drummed out? I don't know. <laughs> who knows? That's a hell of a segue. Well, you know, I, I wasn't sure how else to do it, but... Um, no, it's... Yeah. yeah. I, I just wanted to acknowledge the elephant in the room. So who else needs to be drummed out of, of Hollywood? You know, I, I, I'm really kind of feeling, and, and I say this as someone who who sells the products of several of these, these companies, but it is ridiculous what is happening right now if you want to buy a flat panel television. 
I mean, really, flat panel televisions, not trying to equate flat panel televisions with sexual predators. Obviously. Obviously. But there is so much back and forth and competition. And I hear that now the sales numbers continue to fall. So, like, basically anyone out there who does not have a flat panel television who wanted one, guess what? They're really, really fucking cheap right now. Really? $399 for a 4K HDR. How big? 55 inches I for mean, 300 bucks 399 dollars. why am i here talking to you I, I i don't know but but here's the thing if you don't own one of these things right now the competition is incredibly fierce and there are certainly three thousand five thousand really expensive ones too but uh i remember when you couldn't buy any television set any television set larger than 27 inches for 400 dollars and the manufacturers continue to throw extra things on it to make you th- you think that, oh, I should have this one because it has extra special sound or it has extra 3D mode or extra high dynamic range. And it is all a bunch of distraction. What people actually need to do is just actually look at the screen and see if it makes a decent image, which I feel like a lot of people don't do. And it's hard, of course, when you go into the big box stores and you have a million screens that are all turned up as bright as possible. But there are actually some very good people out there who review sets. And what a huge huge pain in the butt it is now to try to disseminate the differences of one screen from another based on nothing but a bunch of specs or seeing that all these screens are turned are turned on to the absolute brightest level so uh, i'm telling you that uh, there's going to be some sort of shake up here and that it's not really attainable because i got to imagine at the prices that they're selling this it has to be now such a narrow margin that they're not going to be able to maintain this or stay in business or I don't know when screens like this, that this quality costs nothing. It is. It's ridiculous. Well, and we talked, uh, I think on the last episode or the previous one before that about the HDR trend. Oh yes. And HDR is just a momentary trend because all, already there's talk about the 8k sets. So first you had to go HD, then you had to go maybe HD and flat panel or a projector. Then you had to go 3d. And then after 3d, you had to go HDR. And now you're, you're I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know anyone. I, this is a lie, actually. Adam Green, Adam Green, yeah. the, the director of the Hatchet movies. Yeah, he has a 3D television, and he likes watching 3D stuff at his office at Aeroscope, which is not very far from here. But he's the only one. I don't know anyone else who likes to sit around their house and watch HD anything in 3D. And, and I also wonder, like, what is the limit of the human eye's ability to resolve higher resolution? I can answer that for you. And it has everything to do with the number 4K. So really? Oh, yes. 4K. And and here's the thing. But beyond all this, it's viewing distance. You, the consumer right now, are being told that what you are looking at is not good enough and you have to have something better. All of these manufacturers are telling consumers they have to constantly be updating their screen. And if you just look at the screen, you will know whether or not you have a decent image. And HDR may not have been the way that someone intended something to look certainly something in the past and do you really want to be watching something now in a way that no one ever intended I don't know I don't know if I do yeah I think that's a little oddball and 8k seems like to me 8k seems valuable to filmmakers because it gives you the ability to punch in and reframe around if you're doing a 4k delivery but I don't I can't imagine wanting an 8k television in my house and, and that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about acquisition. We're talking about display. And the limits of human vision has 
have basically been been reached and where most people sit in a movie theater is like watching standard definition they sit in the back sitting in the back of the theater means you're not seeing any of the resolution anyway. i'm gonna say is i'm calling bullshit on you because if you give me the choice since i was 15 years old i will sit in the fourth row that's great that's where i, I mean, always that, like no but that's that well that's the best place that you should be there should be a fight happening all the time to sit one screen height away from a from a screen and like that like a happen. like a fist fight yeah there well there should be competition but can we give them like a like a baseball bat with a nail through it like an escape from new york quite often when i go to the theater it seems like the place that i want to sit is always available like when i go to the arc light you know you can choose your seat the seats that are i want to sit one screen height away always available yeah. but the stuff in the middle stuff in the back you don't see you don't see half of what's going on yeah yeah Anyway, so Ben, enough about my little rant here about the, the, <laughs> the, the, the crappiness of screens. Uh, who's on the show today? Uh, today it's Christian Seabalt. Uh, we uh, we had his war story on the last episode, and Christian Seabalt, I think, is uh, is a really amazing TV, mostly TV guy. He's done some features, certainly has. Um, and I think I talked about this last episode. He was somebody who was actually pitched to me once when I was directing my first feature. Super smart, journeyman DP. Great, great backstory. Great everything. Oh yeah, and I know he's got some uh, some Resident Evil in there, some Resident Evil Apocalypse, oh, right? Resident Evil Apocalypse. I I know that you're a big fan of uh, of all things horror, so yeah. I mean, I don't know. Resident Evil is like more like a video game movie than it is a horror movie, but it definitely has horror overtones. Fantastic. Well, who's our sponsor for our show today? Our sponsor, as always, is Airy, the amazing Airy. I'll tell you that we just unboxed our new uh, demo Airy Alexa Mini camera mm-hmm. here on the uh, the the showroom space here at Hot Rod Cameras, and I will tell you that it was as if a hush fell over the place when that got powered on for the first time. Everyone like ooed. It was like ooh, really? Yes, it's uh, it's really the Alexa Mini is. I think the most successful Alexa camera they've ever sold. And I really? think the Alexa was like the most successful camera that Aerie ever made, like even more successful than all their film cameras. For real? So, so yeah, the, the Alexa mini is like blowing up and you see it everywhere. And I mean, I see it in Instagram photos and behind the scenes stuff everywhere. So anyway, would not surprise me if some of your favorite shows shot on now the Alexa mini. Well, and every DP I know, no matter what camera they have, like if you said, Name the camera you want to shoot X project on. They will start with some airy Alexa, some some version of it. And also, you know, just obviously all the lenses, all the accessories, all the everything that Airy does. They are the industry leader and have been as long as I've been paying any attention to this business, which is, you know, for me, I don't know. Yeah. 25 20 plus years. years. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Ben, should we uh, jump right into the interview? So here's Christian Seabald. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California with Christian Sebalt. ASC? ASC. Uh, how's it going? Thank you for coming out. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. No. Anytime. So we kind of start with a couple of questions that I think uh, they've kind of become like my stock questions, but I think it's a good way to just kind of get talking about stuff. I have a belief that cinematographers either start, uh, if, if you're given a script, you're either going to imagine how you're going to light it and then find composition within that, or you're thinking in terms of composition when you read the script. And so I always ask people, where does it start for you? Does it start with how you want to light it, or does it start with an image and how that's going to be set up by you? Um, I can't separate the two. I can't separate you know, lighting and colors and framing and, and camera movement you know, from each other. I think that's all one to me. So when I read a script, 
I do literally see um, angles, I see close-ups, I see macro shots, I see light streaming in, I see warm colors and cyans and this and that. So to me, it's all, all a good mix of, of everything that gives me, a, a, from the first read, a pretty good picture of what I think it should look like. Then, of course, comes the second step, you know, to talk with either the directors or the producers, if there's no director yet, you know, to see what they had in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I always assume that when by the time they're talking to me or considering me, that they have seen what I do. You know, and I don't want to say that every DP has uh, one style and that's all they can deliver, but uh, you have certain tastes, you know, for lighting and style and camera movement and so on. And so by the time I'm sitting there, we're talking. Um, I assume that what I do, they enjoy, they like, they they like for this uh, particular project. But in the end, if it's a feature film, um, I sit there with the director for days or weeks, you know, and we go through scene by scene and determine what the pace is, you know, what the scene is about, if it's not quite clear from the first sentence, and we figure out how to to tell it, uh, the, the story of those scenes visually. And we'll write everything down, we break it down, we make a Bible uh, that then uh, is with me, with us uh, on, the, on the shoot, on location, on the set, and then we follow it uh, where we feel like we should be following it. And eventually uh, the, 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 the shoot be- becomes, um, uh, gets its own life. You know, a movie always suddenly start, starts, um, once it's born, um, uh, becoming its own. And there's a gaffer, a production designer, wardrobe, uh, you know, costume designers, and so on. And everybody contributes, and suddenly it flows, and and you go back to your Bible or you reinvent it, and you uh, you know suddenly the movie is done and it has its own style and its own life. So uh, the Bible that you're describing, what would be in the Bible if I was to look at a Bible for one of the films <coughs> that you'd shot? Um, the Bible can be uh, anything from a few scribbled notes that just describe you know the five five key scenes where one has a cyan look, one has a bleach bypass look, one has uh, is, is overexposed and bright like a dreamy sequence, uh, and it can go into a very detailed 50-page uh, uh, document where almost every scene is uh, scene number and uh, uh, scene description is in there with, with a detailed breakdown of what the costume colors could be, you know, what the set colors should be, what the technique for a flashback is is it uh, lens babies is it uh, you know a laboratory process uh, when we were shooting film so it can the bible can be anything from a recorded thing on a little little device that i play back on the set and say what what were we going to do again to a printout with copies to the costume designer to the mm-hmm. production designer it can can be big it can be small you know depending on the complexity of, of the project and also how much uh, time we have for prep so uh, you say that when you when you read a script, you immediately start to kind of see in your head. Where does that come from? Where does the inspiration for what it is, not the script itself, obviously. If I hand you a script and you're reading it for the first time, you're going to start seeing images. Where, where are those images coming from? What's informing that for you? Um, my dear God, it's a, it's a lifetime of, of, you know, seeing the world, of traveling, of going to distant places, um, I've been in many, many places in the world, and I see, you know, I see, working in Thailand, there's a heavy humidity, uh, there's mist, you know, and there's people sweating, there's uh, everything is lush and green, and so 
those are in my head somewhere. I've been uh, uh, in Africa, you know, Ivory Coast. I worked there and so on. So I've been to different places. And then, God, I've seen thousands of films and, and documentaries mm -hmm. and, and TV projects. I've worked on so many films that all of that is in the back of my head somewhere. It's, it's, a, it's a little storage unit there that I can open up <laughs> and where images just pop up. And, and, and those are not just inspired by what I happen to have seen, but they come from the page. They jump up. And, and as I read a description of something that, that a writer you know, has created in his or her head, um, they may be new images that I don't recall seeing anywhere. You know, where I'm thinking, "Wow, this is this, the description of this scene is so beautiful. We gotta get as close to that as possible." And and the the orange burnt you know look that's described there. That's we we gotta figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. So it comes from many different places. Well, and right off the bat, even just talking to you for a few minutes, I noticed that you think a lot in color. It seems like you talk a lot about color. When I think about the work of yours that I've seen, I do think about like there is a very conscious use of, of color. I don't know. It, it's glib to say that this stuff is, it's not that it's slick. It's that there's, there feels like there's intentionality behind every, every mm -hmm. frame of it. Mm -hmm. uh, like it doesn't look like there's any accidents happening. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking about even like fear.com and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Take me back if you could a little bit. And like, when was it that you realized that being a cinematographer was a thing that you could pursue? When did the lightning strike for you? Um, I grew up in Munich, Germany, and uh, as a kid, had my little black and white lap in literally in the basement. And um, I would experiment with different developing processes and so on, and uh, making shadows and out of focus and this and that and different, different uh, chemicals. And uh, I just had great joy from taking pictures in different environments at different times with different lenses, and uh, but also manipulating them, mm -hmm. you know, in my little tiny lap, and then showing pictures to. How um, how old are you about now when you're doing this? Twelve. Really? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, and showing pictures to family and friends, and and sometimes they would say, "Wow, that, you did that," and sometimes they would say, "What is that? I can't tell what it is." You know, <laughs> and I'm going, "That's so. You don't see what this is. You just don't understand, mom." Yeah, and so. Um, I think that's that sparked my love love for capturing images and you know to a certain extent uh, for manipulating them. My dad was um, you know at that time was a producer, sometimes copywriter, sometimes director, uh, very often a composer for one big commercial production company in oh, Munich. Wow. I think at that time the job descriptions weren't as uh, uh, compartmentalized. compartmentalized at that time with the uh, job description. Um, uh, back then, uh, uh, one person uh, in a production company could do multiple jobs. It's not like today where one is a director and that's what he does or she does. Uh, one is a writer. My dad would often come home at night and say, I can't figure out how to say this. We're advertising a pen and uh, I'm blanking. And so my mom and I and he would sit at the table, the dinner table with you know pretzels and sausages and things. And we all would throw out stuff and uh, he would say, ah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And then sure enough, he would write the copy and take it to the office and everybody would say, oh, that's cool. You're great. You're great. You're genius. But I would also watch him shoot stuff, you know, in a studio or on a racetrack. And I'm... I, Motion picture kind of stuff? Yes. Yeah. Four commercials. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And uh, all on 35. And, um, you know, because of my love capturing images, my eye would always go to the uh, cinematographer uh, who was a friend of my father's, of course, and they did everything together. And I saw observing different types of projects that every job was a different challenge for everybody. 
one day they would be shooting uh, an oven in on the in the studio with you know flames and lots of smoke you know trying to figure out how to direct the smoke out the window next day they would be advertising a, a dishwasher and you know, with completely different challenges with water in there and runoff and blah 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 <laughs> so i thought this was quite ex- exciting you know and another step up uh, beyond still photography where you by yourself you know go somewhere and say oh that's pretty you know and then you take a picture of a flower and you're thinking wow that's really pretty uh, in 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 contrast to having a team you know of a, a technical and artistic crew and you're trying to together as a, a group accomplish you know a product and satisfy a client or then later you know a studio or a, a, a tv producing a, a company and so i thought what this guy does, this cameraman, you know, that's probably what I should be doing. So pretty early on, I, I found a taste for for what uh, he did, and then the next, what 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 happened next, basically, is that um, uh, I told my father that cameraman might be something that might be my first choice. There wasn't a second choice, to be honest. I couldn't think <laughs> of anything else to do. And he said, "Well, let me see what I can do." He uh, made some calls, and I got a uh, train into a training program at the Bavaria Studios in Munich, which is a very, very large uh, uh, motion picture and television studio with many, you know, stages and, and art departments and laboratory and all that. And so I was a trainee there for two years, um, and was in every department from developing to printing to uh, oh, color wow. correcting. To, uh, and this was very important, I figured out later, also to the uh, visual effects in the, I was in the uh, visual effects department for four months. And we would be doing front, front projection, green screen. Uh, I was working on an optical printer, which mm-hmm. they might not have anymore. I don't think, I think they have them in museums now. Yes, uh, I'm sure. So I learned about the basics of, of, you know, technology, what happens behind the scenes. You go shoot, but mm-hmm. then what happens? So it was a good training ground. There was a former DP there who taught us once a week about how do you shoot something on purpose? You know, you don't just point and shoot. You know, what? how do you break it down? What What is it you're trying to say? Uh, we would uh, shoot with him. We would edit our own material and so on and uh, eventually go out and be camera assistants or uh, also shoot our own films on the weekend. Uh, Bavaria Studios was kind enough to give us cameras, lighting and dolly oh, and, nice. and everything. So was it, it was it, like it sounds like an internship or what, or a mentorship or was it actually a film school? We not, it was not a film school. It was hands-on, and so the first few weeks in every new department, we were just interns. And if we you know followed the rules and 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 uh, understood what we were supposed to do, we would actually get paid a little bit. Hmm. You know, so we got a little pocket money. It was a few hundred marks back then. It was not very much, but so um, we learned. We worked. You know, we had to be on time. We, we learned how to be responsible, you know, I mean, kids, Yeah. you know, and so it was a good start, you know, and during that time to make some extra money, I would also uh, be a camera, was a camera assistant for uh, one of the Bavarian television networks. And so we would go out and shoot some politicians, uh, you know, shaking hands. We would go into a nuclear facility and document, you know, 10, 20 shots for some news story. And so I learned about... Um, the challenges of just you know handling and managing equipment, making sure that we had exactly what was required, and so I learned the the ropes there. I was mm-hmm. the basics, my, my my very start. And so you never went to an actual like formal film school. I did not go to film school. No. Okay, that's always interesting. My, my film school was um, on the ground in the yeah. dirt well, on location. I mean, it sounds like it was a kind of film on school. The set. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that's fascinating. And so like you say that the, that a cinematographer would come in and teach you guys what, what kinds of things do you remember any of the kind of lessons that he taught? What was his name? Do you remember his name? I, I don't remember his name and I don't remember any specifics, but you have a script. You, you start with the written word on the page and, and you have to figure out how to translate that into cinematography images. And then how do you do that? And so we would take a little bit of script and, and say, okay, here's the scene. Lady comes in, she's looking around, it's really dark, she can't quite see, she's looking for a light switch, she hears you know strange noises and she runs screaming out the door. Well, how do you portray that? You know, do you light it bright, do you light it dark? You know, is there a little glow deep in the back? Are there moving shadows? You no, know, is there wind blowing in, you know, with curtains moving, you know? And so we would all brainstorm and together we would figure out how to translate, you know, that one sentence into captivating images. And mm-hmm. we would, you know, go out and try to shoot something that replicated what we had talked about. And then we realized that that was actually quite a challenge. You know, it's not, not that easy to take um, a, a scene that you can see in your head and that you talked about and actually replicate that what you saw in your head on the set. How long were you studying cinematography in this way where you were coming up with scenes? I, I was um, I was at the uh, Bavaria Studios for two years and um, it was fabulous for me. It was a new world and I was very, very young. I was probably 18 when I started there. And um, I wasn't living at home anymore. You know, I had a place where I had to be five days a week. And we had alt, uh, alternating shifts. So one shift, I had to be there at 6 a.m., from 6 a.m. till 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. Next week, I had to be there from 2 p.m. till, I don't know, past midnight or whatever. And so it was my first big job, you know, where I was learning and experimenting and playing, you know, and I got paid. That was pretty sweet. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> it was great fun. <laughs> Most of us had to pay for film school. So. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So when you get done with that, what's what's the pathway between that and, and being a cinematographer for you? How, how long of a period before you're out there shooting? Yeah. I had made connections uh, during that time with uh, television stations as an AC. So I was it was pretty easy for me to get AC jobs. There was mm-hmm. always something to do somewhere. And then eventually I got uh, into uh, commercials as an AC and... Um, but I must say that, and also did a television series as an AC uh, at that time, and especially in Germany, you didn't have a crew. There were it wasn't the first AC and a second and a loader and this and that and guys helping move all the stuff around. It was just me, you know. So I was the first AC and the loader and everybody and everything. It was it was a hard job, you know, You're like and clapping the sticks and then running and around. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And I was measuring and focusing, you know, reloading the mags and then you know moving all the, the stuff back to the truck and then moving to another location and so on. So I, I didn't enjoy it that much because <laughs> I didn't feel I had any any creative input into anything and also i i watched the 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 dps and you know i'm young and arrogant i'm thinking i can do that you know why why don't they hire me well they're not going to hire you because you haven't done anything you know yeah. so i finally um having done a whole bunch of commercials as an ac which were very educating because uh, coming from television where everything at that time was just you know very low budget and very fast in the commercial world i watched a dp light a champagne bottle all day long he spent one whole day he was a co-owner of the company. He spent a whole day lighting a bottle. And, uh, you know, there were no digital effects then. So if he found uh, a sliver of a reflection somewhere, well, then uh, somebody would hang a little bit of duvetine, you know, from the 20-foot ceiling to kill the reflection. And if he not wanted to highlight the letters on the bottle a little bit better, 
Well, he would take some white material, hang it in a very specific spot that would reflect within the letters, and then light that, you know, at a certain brightness. So he fiddled with it all day long. I couldn't believe it. You know, it was a completely different world. It opened up uh, my brain to that. Um, if something is really important to you, you got to spend time on it and you figure it out in advance and you say, guys, it's going to take a, a, a day to light that bottle. And there were clients sitting outside the stage. Uh, they were having great food. They were drinking booze. And then we <laughs> all went to lunch for an hour and a half at a you know, wonderful Italian restaurant. And we would come back and they, nobody had anything to do except the lighting and grip and the DP. So I was just watching there. So that was very, very interesting. And um, But then eventually I said, you know, I'm not going to AC anymore. I told everybody that I knew, I'm, I'm done ACing. I am now shooting, you know, and then there were no jobs and nothing was coming in. And then, you know, somebody from a production, commercial pro production house called and said, no, you can shoot, you know, some additional camera on the side. You know, we have some a bunch of shots that we, we really could use a second person for. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I did that. I shot a little bit additional photography. Then uh, they hired me for some smaller projects. Then I got uh, a call from a um, very large company called MBB. I don't think they exist anymore. Messerschmitt, Birko, Blum. And at the time, they were developing um, everything from uh, helicopters to satellites to uh, weapons uh, to uh, jet engines and so on. And I had a seat for them, uh, but the uh, in-house DP had left and they called and said, hey, we want to hire you just full time, you know, just be here every day, you know, we'll get cool stuff for you to shoot. And I was, uh, you know, very appreciative of the offer. But then I'm thinking every day I'm like at an industrial house or company and then I shoot jets taking off and landing. And so I turned that down. But I said, you know, why don't you hire me freelance? You know, I'm here. I'm ready to go. You know what I do. And uh, they said, OK, we'll do that because if we can't have you full time, you know, then we'll take you part time. And so I started shooting industrials for them. Uh, which required a lot of lighting, you know, very often inside industrial spaces with uh, bombs and metal things and uh, jet wings and satellites and this and that. And so they had to be lit. So I learned more about lighting in an environment that was very easy where, you know, nobody criticized anything I did. They were happy I was there. You know, mm -hmm. I could learn. I could you know, make mistakes and nobody would freak out. Even if I would have ever had to reshoot something, which never happened, you know, they would have said, "Oh, just reshoot it." They were very kind, and uh, I was young and I was excited, and so that was a good, good training ground, you know, to be the guy. You know, I ordered the lights, I ordered the lenses, and I figured out what need what needed to be shot and where we had to be at what point, and so that was another step that uh, uh, toward being a cinematographer because I was suddenly doing the job, you know, and had to learn what what mistakes not to make, how to be prepared, and so on, and how to communicate with people what needed to be done. After that uh, came my desire to shoot something bigger, you know, bigger than a little 30-second commercial, bigger than shooting feature films, and so on. And I got a job um, as an AC, to be honest, on a very, very big movie because I hadn't experienced uh, being on a big feature mm -hmm. film you know, that, that was lacking. You know, from, what was the movie? From, you know, it was lacking from uh, industrials and commercials and, and television work. And so there was a director named, named Rainer Werner Fassbinder, a German uh, director who yeah. had done a lot of stuff. <laughs> I, I might have been leaning here. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard of him. And he was uh, prepping a movie called Lily Marlene in mm -hmm. 1980, I believe. And uh, they needed an AC. That was towards the end of his career, right? Um, yeah, close. Uh -huh, very good. 
And I'm thinking, I, I'll AC for them. You know, it was even a loader position, loader, yeah. second AC. You know, the first AC was an older gentleman who did not own a measuring tape. So that very, very much impressed <laughs> me. He shot a gigantic movie without a measuring tape. I don't know how he did it. He just eyeballed it. And he was like, yeah, he that looks like eight it. feet and yeah, seven and, inches. Know, yeah, he just knew it was <clears> unbelievable. And so uh, my job was loading and I got very close to, you know, Fassbinder and all these guys. Really? And, you know, Shigula and, and, and Giancarlo Giannini and all these, these what actors. What was that like? What was it like working with those guys? <clears throat> it, it was uh, quite amazing because I suddenly realized there's another side to the film business. You now, besides what I had been experiencing, it was huge. It was a 10 million mark movie. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I also realized the, uh, the, the massive power a director can, can possess. You know, one of the first things he said is uh, because he didn't like the producer who was a more right-wing leaning, and mm-hmm. you know, Fassbinder, of course, was very much left-leaning. First thing he said is, no, if the producer comes to set, I leave, and I may not come back. So the producer never came to set. And I'm thinking, that is just astonishing. Yeah. You know, and also uh, I realized that a lot of the key players in the movie, um, meaning actors and the first AD, were his closest friends. You know, many of them he was living with in a, like a commune setting. Yeah. You know, where, where <laughs> everybody just showed up and slept with everybody and they all lived there. It's and kind of legendary. Yes, and, and true. And so um, I realized, again, how much power he, he had. An actor would piss him off. I hope I can say that on a podcast. You can say anything you want. I can say anything. And, um, for example, we had a gigantic night exterior scheduled in uh, Berlin, uh, with uh, several uh, four or five story buildings that were rigged to be burnt, you know, by for days by special effects people. We had uh, fire uh, engines everywhere. We were ready to go. The buildings were lit for night work and the, the, the flames were about to go up. One of the actors made Rainer Werner Fassbinder mad and he said, you know what, I'm not going to shoot your scene. And we're all going, wow, he's, he's going to joking. He's going to be joking or something. And we never shot the scene. We all packed up, you know, all the goop that was supposed to go on flames, all the gas bars, everything that the buildings had to be prepped with uh, were taken down. The fire trucks, uh, were, which were rented, were sent home. Never shot the scene. Never shot it at all. Never shot it at all. The, f- the scene is not in the movie because we didn't shoot it. And so um, I was just flabbergasted every day by something wacky and strange, you know, that, that happened or somebody coming to me very very close friend of his who would uh, you know be shaking a little little bag with a powder and say you know this can't be proven in your in your urine you know if you if you, you should take this this you can work 20 hours and and there's no, <laughs> you know, you're going to feel great and nobody can I'm thinking, I'm thinking this is all spectacular and then I was driving the van <laughs> with all the film uh, to Zurich in Switzerland uh, we had some uh, bunch uh, some scenes to shoot there and uh, I was stopped at the border by the uh, customs agents Oops. agents in 1980. And they were saying, well, what's in your van? And I'm saying, oh, you know, just some camera gear and some film. We're going to do some filming, you know, really cool stuff. But they weren't impressed by, you know, what I was telling them. They said, well, where, where are your custom customs documents you know, for all the film? I had maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 rolls of, you know, thousand foot uh, film, which is, you know, a tremendous value. And I said, I don't have any costume documents. I just drive. And that was the Zurich. shot. That was the shot film, or that was raw footage. That was raw. Uh, that was un, unexposed film from uh, Kodak, actually from Fuji at the okay, time. Okay, my blood pressure just went a little down, but keep yeah. going. And 
so they said, well, come with, come with me into this back room. And so I'm thinking, well, what is the big deal? I'm a kid. You know, I'm driving the van and I'm thinking, no, I'm 20 or whatever. And I was interrogated for four hours why I was trying to smuggle, you know, film and uh, film equipment into another country. And I'm going, guys, I, I, they said, no, drive this thing to Zurich and it's not a bomb. It's just a film. It's, uh, and they said, well, you know, so where did you grow up? You know, and I had to tell them where I grew up. And they said, you know, have you ever been to Eastern Europe? And I'm saying, yeah, I have, you know, relatives in East Germany. So what are their names? And I was interrogated for four hours. So I was really mad. So <laughs> when they finally said, okay, we're going to keep an eye on you, but you can go. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? Keep an eye on me. So I'm thinking, this is, this is not good. <laughs> so I drove to Zurich and I confronted the producer, you know, who of course knew that you don't smuggle film and, you know, he didn't want to pay for it. The, the, you know, the, the, you have to pay some customs fee. This was the producer yeah, that Fassbinder didn't no, like? No, it was a UPM, you know, oh, line okay. producer. It was somebody else. And I said to him, dude, you know, you knew, right? And he said, you know, yeah, don't worry about it. Nothing will happen there. And so I squeezed him a little bit. He gave me extra money. I'm thinking, <laughs> he tried, you know, so he <laughs> gave me extra money and I, I, I forgot about it. But um, <laughs> another, another, you know, great experience for me, um, when we were at the Bavaria studios and in the, on the stages, uh, shooting this film next door on another stage was uh, Wolfgang Peterson shooting Das Boot. Oh wow! You know, so th there was the big submarine. Did and, you get to like um, walk into that set? Well, better than that, and um, you know they were shooting on Fuji as well. So one day, you know, they're running low, and then you know I run over there, give them film, and then you know and two days later they give it back. And in our uh, uh, script, it was also a submarine, uh, uh, you know, that we needed to shoot, and you know they said, well, you should it right there you know it's, you just walk across the lot and there it is and so we shot for one day in the submarine which was a fabulous set just unbelievable and it was rigged to uh, tilt uh, about 15 degrees I would say left and to, uh, 15 mm -hmm. to the right and inside you know all the pipes the, the everything the, the dials everything was metal and so it was just a nightmare I must say because the moment the thing started to tip you know, left and right. You hit your head. You couldn't keep your balance, <laughs> and uh, you know we put a little smoke in there, and there was no air air conditioning or anything. You know, so yeah. we sweated like crazy. One day we could not wait to get out of there. It was so hard shooting in there. So I I was so impressed by you know the crew and 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 everybody who made the movie. You know, because it was so so. Um, unpleasant to be in there you know <laughs> and as i'm as i'm looking around in there um i walked back into the engine room and as i as, as i looked around in the uh, submarine i walked back to the engine room and there's a gigantic you know diesel engine in there and you know as you walk into a space you put your hand on things and it wasn't cold and i'm going that's that's odd and i realized the whole engine in the movie that's boat is there was a, it was wood they made it out of wood they just painted it you know to look like metal mm -hmm. and and they they animated it so that it looked you know real the whole thing was was wood i mean i was so impressed and i, I realized what what artistry is behind you know all these images that we see in feature films now uh, and how impressive uh, the, uh, the 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 talent is that creates everything you see from the sets to prop to props and everything well in a movie like that too that submarine is like that is a that is a major character yes that's the character in that yeah. movie and it's such a suspenseful awesome movie that in yeah. order to get it right they had to yeah yeah it's fantastic that's 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 amazing yeah did you get to observe them shooting any any of that movie i did not see them you know because we were working five days a week mm -hmm. 
and and there was no chance to walk over there and, and, and watch you know I don't mean to be a hipster I just think that that's possibly Peterson's best film um, I think it is you know I mean it's no, just no question I've about seen it, so many of his films but yeah. and he's great but that movie yeah. is just like it's just a perfect yeah. piece of suspense it, yeah it's gripping and you will never forget it you see it yeah. once most movies you forget at some point um, but I mean the moment I, I had worked on that I realized I had to get into feature films and um, I was looking around and there were very very few movies in Germany at that time and unfortunately today that were really outstanding you know most of the feature films uh, were not quite my taste and so I was looking to, to, I was thinking, you know, where, where can I go, you know, and uh, all the big markets, uh, Australia and so on, didn't exist at that time. You know, uh, of course, there was a large industry in England, but I was not looking forward to going to England and have the weather and all that. I wanted to go somewhere else. So in 1983, I um, took four weeks um, and went to Hollywood in L.A. and looked around, rented a moped, drove everywhere. Um, met with some contacts that I had been given, uh, saw Otto Nemens uh, in his fantastic uh, camera rental house in Hollywood, and um, just loved it. Yeah, I loved the, the the blue sky, the palm trees, the ocean, the mountains. You know, just I just fell in love with it. And I'm thinking, as I'm looking around, I should come here. You know, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, went back home and uh, you know f- had uh, by that time started working for a BBDO a big uh, uh, advertising agency and I was producing for them I wasn't producing anything big you know but they had lots of smaller jobs you know like take a British commercial reshoot all the pack sh- all the product shots uh, reinsert them and deliver the product to us you know mm-hmm. And I would do stuff like that. And um, so I would do a bunch of jobs and make money. And then I sold everything, my furniture, everything I could sell, and just uh, moved to L.A. And you're in your 20s at this point, right? Yes. Uh-huh. So you, you go to Bavarian Studios, is it? Mm-hmm. So you go to work for Bavaria Studios. Mm-hmm. You have two years of that. And then by the time you're in your early 20s, you're working for Fassbender. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you started with an affinity towards camera. You'd been mm-hmm. taking these pictures and all the stuff. When did the spark hit you to specifically be a cinematographer? Like what? I guess I'm talking about the passion to be a cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Where, where did that start? Where did that, where did that take hold? Because you're kind of like moving through the camera department. But I think someone who does the quality of work that you do, there's there's something way bigger about about being a cinematographer in there for you, if if I may. Well, you know, I don't know if I can pinpoint that down to an event or to a day or um, even just a period of time or like. Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 biggest uh, spark was the Fassbinder movie, you know, because that was on such a huge scale that yeah. I I had not not only not experienced before but also I could have never imagined you know we had so many extras you know we shot in Munich and Berlin and Zurich and it was so big you know we had gigantic night exteriors where we would light buildings that were like 600 feet long you know and as I was looking at that I'm thinking you know what an opportunity to create um, visuals that will stun the audience you know for the cinematographer and the cinematographer was really the person who uh, was responsible for the lighting and the colors, Fassbinder would on the set, he had a miniaturized script in his back pocket at all times, and he would, as we arrived on the set, uh, he would draw little storyboards, you know, just off the top of his head. He knew exactly every shot, and he would say, okay, here we start on the door, and on the next next little panel, we dolly left, we pick up so-and-so, you know, then as we dolly back and pan right, you know, we, come, we they walk to each other, and then 
third panel and then they walk over to the desk and you know, we dolly with them and then we rack back you know, next panel uh, to so-and-so coming in the door and then we could you know pull back and we make it a big big shot and so he would uh, you know dictate the pre precisely what the shot would be shot by shot and they were all moving shots but the lighting and the, uh, the the feel of the scene really came exclusively from the cinematographer and who was the cinematographer Sava Schwarzenberger I believe an Austrian gentleman and uh, he was responsible for um, you know the, the the colors and the feel of all the shots and he did a, did a fabulous job and I learned from him a lot you know as I'm just watching that on the set I don't know enough about Fassbender as a human being but I get the impression that a he knew he was a genius and B, he seems like he might have been something of a handful. So w would the DP, w w did he have to corral Fassbender? Did he have to, did, I mean, like you're saying, Fassbender would give him storyboards, so like he would know what he was there to do. But would he have to, I don't know, what was it like working with a, an unhinged genius? It was very dramatic. You know, there were always issues between him and his very, very close friends, the actors. Fassbinder, with the help of some chemicals, I would assume, uh, was always working on three different projects. He was, uh, I believe, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken, editing uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz, the mm -hmm. television series, while he was shooting, working on our movie. And uh, but he was also writing the next next project. Yeah. Yeah. So he was often just ran away from the set and would be doing other things, or would be uh, up all night, you know, editing. Um, or there would be a very very important soccer game, and he would just be gone for two hours. You know, when the where the DP would then be very very angry. We had you know, green screen to do and. He wanted to make sure that the shots are what Fast Fastbender wanted, but Fastbender wanted to watch a football uh, football game. So wow! So there were you know, there was always something going on, and at some point I was loading magazines, and I I ran back from the little dark room, and I you know run with the magazine on my shoulder through a, a door, and he's coming in from the other side, and I run into him, and he just he goes flying, his you know glasses go flying. So for a week or two, he was screaming on the set, and the Christian's trying to kill me. Christian's trying to kill me. <laughs> you know, and so it was never boring. <laughs> you know. No, but genuine legend. So back to what you were talking about when you when you first come out to L.A. in 1983. How do you make the leap? So you sold everything you had. You moved to L.A. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you start establishing yourself out here? Yeah, after visiting uh, Los Angeles for a month and loving it, I went back, sold all my stuff and literally bought a ticket, flew out here, rented a little apartment in Hollywood on Gardner Street and had no work because I didn't know anybody. Yeah. You know, so I spent some time uh, getting more familiar with the language, uh, spent time looking around, you know, trying to meet people, but it was hard because I didn't have any phone numbers. I didn't have somebody who was really plugged in. And so the first uh, two or three years, I would go back to Munich to produce more stuff for BBDO because they would just call and say, hey, you know, we need to do this thing and we don't want to you know, hire one of the big companies in town. You know, we want you. Um, and so I would go back two, three, four times a year to produce stuff. For example, um, there's a government organization that uh, subsidizes film, the uh, FFA or Filmförderungsanstalt. And they wanted to promote in the theaters or cinemas, as we call them, um, for people to go to the movies to see movies and not watch them at home. And so they came up with uh, with BBDO with a concept. Uh, for example, 
um, the MGM lion on a gigantic uh, movie screen is tiny, 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 bottom right corner. And the voice says, this is how you experience the lion at home on TV. Mm-hmm. And then you hear a little meow. <laughs> yeah, and then suddenly it cuts into cinemascope, you know, and you see the big lion, you know, and it roars, you know. And then the voice says, and this is what you experience in the movie theaters. And so I produced three of them for them. Did you get to uh, shoot with a real lion? We, we did not shoot anything. We took existing footage. Uh-huh. You know, we had uh, a great clip from a James Bond film. Mm-hmm. You know, we're on a tiny little screen. You see some boats, you know, driving around, and then it cuts. And then you have on the big screen again, in, in wide screen, one of the you know boats just flying over other boats, and you know, big stunts. And then, then another one was a scene from two thousand one, mm-hmm. where you see you know the famous uh, wheel. In in you know actually it's, I think it started with with the little little monkey uh, little uh, gorillas the gorillas and well yeah it's kind of a chimp proto human yeah so uh, with in, in two thousand one on the small you know very made very small you see the little the little chimp you know breaking the bone and then it cuts on the big screen you know really big in cinemascope to the uh, the spaceship uh, yeah. with the uh, fantastic music and so we did three of them and. Uh, I had to produce them, and what we did is, I went back to the Bavaria studios and uh, asked them, you know, to shrink those images down on their optical printer. But the problem for them was they couldn't make them that small. You know, they didn't with, with the lenses and the uh, physical capability of of the printers. It wasn't possible. You couldn't get that small. So they had to take multiple step to shrink the <laughs> images down that small and keep them sharp enough so that people could even see <laughs> on the big screen. You know, that small. Uh, what those items were but anyway uh, I was able to to finish them and make them we won uh, Art Directors Club awards nice so very thrilled about that so those were the kind of jobs I got you know, all kinds of different things and, but after a few years you know of going back to Munich to uh, produce stuff for BBDO I realized and I'll never make any connections you know I'll, I'll never build any kind of career if I'm always gone and so I called them up and said guys this is it you know just like I did earlier and said, I'm not acing anymore, you know, so I cut that off. And uh, then as things happen in the world, uh, I met somebody who was doing uh, educational films and they hired me for five educational films. They recommended me to somebody else who was doing fabulous, really big nature documentaries for U.S. Fish and, and Wildlife. And we did a fabulous movie uh, or documentary about sandhill cranes unbelievably fascinating for me and then we made a film about the California condor you know the last remaining wild uh, California condors and then those people recommended me and then suddenly it snowballed you know and then at some point I was working for Roger Corman um, shooting second unit and all kinds of movies you know additional photography and then uh, I became close friends with one of the producers there and then you know he said uh, you should shoot a movie for us and I said that's why I'm here, dude. Let's go. And so I shot uh, four movies for Roger Corman, and I got lucky. They were the bigger and better ones. Well, which um, ones were the were the Corman movies that you shot? Um, the first one I think was called Die Trying Part Four. Nice. Yeah. Part three had some unanswered questions. And I think we had uh, like thirty days or so you know, to shoot. Corman had a thirty day shoot. Yes. I, no way. I, yeah, it was it was it was it was big, and so it was uh, quite quite a good challenge a- for about me. About what year is it that you're working for Corman? 
Uh, we may have to look it up. It must. Have, it was in the 90s. I did another uh, film that I really, that I still today really have fond memories of. It was called uh, No Dessert Dad Until You Mow the Lawn. Mm-hmm. You know, very sweet family film. And again, we had, we had enough time. We built sets. And that was a Corman film. That was a Roger Corman film. I did. I shot four there. And after that, um, I could build a reel, you know, because I had footage that was, you know, from sweet, soft family film entertainment to, you know, more harsher, you know, kickboxing, you know, dark dramas. So uh, working at Corman's on, uh, you know, feature film work uh, allowed me to build a better reel than I had been up until then. And um, that opened the doors you know, for other projects. There are companies in L.A., like there's one called The Asylum, and they make like the Sharknado movies, for instance. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that we've ever seen the like of Corman. I mean, I know Corman is still making movies, but as an industry leader in that kind of thing, I don't think we've seen that mm-hmm. really. I mean, I guess there's PM Entertainment. There are people like Charlie Band, stuff like that. But yeah. Corman was like so unique. What was it like working in, in the environment around Corman? Did you deal with Corman a lot yourself? Or what was the atmosphere like on those shoots? Yeah. Um, it was probably the best time of my life in the film industry for many, many reasons. And um, I did not interact with Corman. I think Corman came to the set once or twice. But he just walked through and said, hi, guys. You know, thanks for making cool movies. <laughs> um, the uh, only other time I met him when he watched a movie that I shot, and the title is um, The Red Baron, The Revenge of the Red Baron with Toby McGuire. What? And so I did it, I, it. Toby McGuire was in a Corman it, film. You yes. just kind of blew my mind. So my, uh, my wife's a script supervisor, and she did you know, two Spider Man movies and many big, you know, many, 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 many other big films. And uh, one day when I visit her at Sony on the Spider Man set, and I look at this kid, and I'm thinking, that's Toby McGuire. I know his face. And it hit me. He had been in The Revenge of the Red Baron. <laughs> I could imagine that, you know, with his powers, uh, his credit is erased on the internet. And that, uh, but anyway, um, so I made this movie uh, that the only reason they made The Revenge of the Red Baron was because they had stock footage from a bigger film that they made <laughs> earlier of uh, the, the three winged, you know, yeah, yeah. planes or whatever they're called. So they had some footage, and they and and Corman said to my producer friend Michael Elliott, you know, we gotta make a, a new movie. You know, we have, have all this footage. Let's just make another movie. And so somebody wrote a script, and uh, I remember seeing Roger Corman in his offices uh, when the film was done, and we screened it for him. That was you know one of the few times I met him, and he looked at it, and he stayed there the whole time, and the lights came up, and he looked, he turned back to Mike Elliott and me, and he said. This might be the worst film I ever produced. Wow. And I haven't seen his 1,000 films. It's quite possibly true. <laughs> so, um, but working for him was a, a nonstop adventure. Mm-hmm. For example, um, on uh, No Dessert That Until You Mow the Lawn, uh, we decided during prep that the family would have a van, you know, like most families have. And of course, we couldn't afford a nice van, you know. So what showed up was a cargo van without windows, <laughs> and everybody said, "Guys, we're, we're gonna have some dialogue in there." And I mean, at least, okay, we gotta put seats in there, okay? So somebody said, uh, "Art department," everybody said, "Yeah, we're gonna get seats. Don't worry about it." And I said, "No." Also, you know, we're gonna shoot all these faces, you know, into the the middle of the the cargo van. You guys gotta put wood paneling or something in there. And they said, "Yeah, we can do that. No problem." 
So I show up on the first set in the morning at 6 a.m. on the uh, lot in uh, Venice, California. And I see the van there and the doors open and there's seats inside and there's something brown on the walls. I'm guessing that's uh, wood paneling. And I look up on the roof and I'm thinking, what? What is on the roof? There's like there's stuff up there that's like, I don't know, what is that? So as I get closer, I realize that somebody in the art department had gotten wood paneling from Home Depot and had taken some kind of drill and you know, screws and just screwed the, heart, the, the wood paneling right into the metal of the car. And so the roof, there were like a thousand screws sticking up from the wood paneling they had drilled into the, the, oh my the God. ceiling from inside. And I thought that was a big laugh. I thought that was very funny. And, and so there's a thousand stories you know, like that <laughs> where you just go, okay, that's just too weird. And, and that's a fact. And we should use the van. And the van's in the movie. And we, uh, you know, we couldn't get another van. That was, uh, you know. Or we would be shooting uh, car chases in the back of the studios in Venice at 3, 4 a.m. And people would be yelling out the windows, this must stop. I can't take it anymore. I'm <laughs> calling the cops. You no. Know? Well, the cops never showed up. You know, so we would be shooting, you know, gunfights yeah. and... Gunfights? No, no cop would ever show up. Gunfights. Well, Venice was a different place back then, right? Uh, I don't know if the police <laughs> knew uh, Roger Corman very well personally, oh, but uh, the palms were greased. showed up. That's funny. Uh, so who were like who were the contemporaries at Corman at the time? Was like Wally Pfister there? Um, I, I met Wally Pfister there. Yeah, he was shooting something, you know, a bunch mm-hmm. of movies. Um, I don't know who else was there. Mike Mickens. Who? Mike Mickens was there, yeah. Um, Mike Gaffer on one of the movies. Um, uh, there's a... Uh, cinematographer named Carlos Gonzalez I think I, I know I, Carlos I, I think I met him there if I'm not mistaken I didn't know Carlos was was a Corman guy I, I think so yeah. I met Carlos I started as a makeup artist yeah. in Alabama in in the first movie I ever worked on was in 1993 mm-hmm. and for David Pryor David Pryor was the director mm-hmm. I was the assistant makeup artist and Carlos was the DP on that mm-hmm. and he shot a couple of movies for David and David was sort of like the Roger Corman of the southeast yeah uh, and he would make these kind of monster action, whatever, mm-hmm. exploitation <laughs> movies, mostly yeah. shot either in New Orleans or Mobile. Yeah. I, I got to get Carlos on here. I, yeah, Carlos I mean, and I had the same teacher like yeah. 10 years apart. He would had a, a gentleman named Rolf Clemente mm-hmm. who had taught also David Nutter. And he'd had him at the University of Miami. And then I had gone to a different film school in Orlando and yeah. Rolf was teaching there. So yeah. we kind of bonded over that. Experiences at Corman's, uh, for example... Producer called me and said, "You know, we made this uh, this erotic, um, you know, crime film in South America, and you know, it's it's really cool and came out really well. But there's no sex in it, you know. So we we can't, you know, we got we got to beef it up. You got to shoot a sex scene for us. And so I said, "Yeah, fine, I'll come by." <laughs> so I show up. You know, we have a stage and there's a bed. Of course, need a bed for a sex most sex scenes. And um, there's this handsome, you know, young man and. Uh, um, this beautiful woman and turns out the, the woman is from the film you know from South America and uh, the producer whispers to me she won't take her top off you know and I said well that's going to be tough then you know to shoot the set. so what do you have in mind so he said well you know she's going to lift her, her t-shirt and then we'll cut and then she's going to go home and I have somebody else who's going to you know do the rest of it and I said yeah, that will work and so yeah we start with the actress she's very very lovely you know beautiful and uh, sure enough she lifts her her t-shirt up and stops just short of the goods and uh, she she goes home and this other girl who looks quite like her you know shows up and putting her in the same place and she lifts her 
t-shirt off and she's naked suddenly. And so we start shooting with the two and they're pretending to make love. And then we go to lunch and this you know, handsome guy with the uh, Australian accent who was the naked man in the scene says, you know, guys, no, I, I don't know how to put that, but, um, you know, I just got here from Sydney and, uh, and uh, my agent said, you know, I got the first job for you, you know, but he never mentioned that I'm going to be completely naked and I'm going to be doing a sex scene for you guys. So he was a little, little thrown off by that, but I'll mm-hmm. never forget that. I thought that was funny that you know, <laughs> he thought it was his start in Hollywood on, you know, a cool movie. <laughs> so I don't know if that got him another job. Welcome to Hollywood, friend. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. awful. But uh, as I said earlier, um, you know, those films, maybe not the sex scene, but they uh, <laughs> enabled me to build a better reel and uh, then, you know, got me the next jobs. And also the producer, Mike Elliott, who had hired me for, you know, tons of additional photography and uh, those four Roger Corman films uh, eventually moved on and uh, produced for Hayam Saban, who was making family entertainment. And so I shot four movies for him there, two Casper movies. Yeah, they were like Casper. They were like uh, yeah, straight. I mean, yeah, two Casper movies and two other films. I can't recall what they were. But, um, <laughs> How, what kind of schedules did you have when you were working on those films? Again, we had like you know, 30 days with fantastic cast, you know, because mm-hmm. they were family entertainment. Um, anyway, so I did four movies for Hayam Saban, and they were, um, you know, glossier and, and higher budget um family entertainment that I hadn't really done on that level and, and really fun and, and beautiful films. And so again, they beefed up my reel and mm-hmm. expanded my repertoire that I could show. <laughs> and uh, what was it about your work, like at, at the Corman stuff that brought you to those films? Like what was it that made them tap you specifically? It was the producer, you know, who just, um, who was given incredible freedom at Corman's mm-hmm. because he could put out a solid product um, of any genre uh, with a good cast without any supervision. You know, there was really nobody there except the kids on the stage, you know, that were producing and editing and there was, yeah. you know, a projector room, you know, where there were no windows and no ventilation and so you would eat your pizza in the projector room watching dailies every day. There would be stinky stuff everywhere. It was just awful, but we were watching <laughs> film dailies Sounds like summer day. camp. It was like summer camp. And so... Yeah, honestly, it sounds a little bit like the Bavarian Studios that you started out in. Not quite. It was just slightly different. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's like a place where a lot of people it, went to cut their teeth or to learn or to kind of get to the next that level. That part is true, yeah, except the Bavarian Studios were, you know, like Universal here. Uh-huh. And Corman's was like... It was one block <laughs> long, you know. It was very small. <laughs> But the producer brought me with him, and I mean, I mean, he said, you know, he because he knew what what I could do, and he directed a lot of second unit that I shot for him, and so mm-hmm. we were friends. And when when he was hired to do those f- family films, he just brought me with him, you know. And I don't think anybody questioned my my abilities. You no, know, he just said, no, I want you to shoot those films, and I said, yeah, let's go. So at this point, do you think that you're like looking at the long view of the trajectory of your career, and saying like? Like, are your ambitions as a cinematographer starting to grow and you're seeing the kind of movies you want to be making? Or are you are you seeing sort of like what your style, what your look, what your even just the the tendencies that you have creatively? Like at Corman, you know, it's kind of a volume business over there. Or it was mm-hmm. where you were having to you're, you're trying to make stuff good as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. But now you're you're at this point and I'm and I'm asking like are you starting to see okay when I actually have the the correct amount of time this is the kind of thing I want to be doing yes and no I'm I'm still at the stage where I'm collecting knowledge 
you know now mm-hmm. i had done uh, dark stuff and and wacky stuff and i had done kickboxing movies uh and and stuff with monsters and this and that and so now i'm doing uh, family entertainment that's you know of a, of a certain quality level and so i'm learning how to do those and uh sure i had an idea of where i wanted to go but I was basically busy. I was just I was making movies mm-hmm. with people that I really liked, and and everybody was nice on those films, and I knew the the directors, I knew the producer, my old friend from uh, Cormans, and so I, I'm I'm at a stage where I do what I wanted to do, be a cinematographer in Hollywood, and uh, I had work and I had income, you know, and uh, life was good. So I I did not know at that point how to take the next step, how to get to a bigger and better product or Mm -hmm. project. Uh, What eventually happened, um, I think that was in uh, uh, 2000 or 1999, maybe 2000, um, my wife, uh, Mary Seward, the script supervisor, was working on a Joel Silver, Warner Brothers uh, picture called House on Haunted Hill. Mm -hmm. The director is uh, William Malone. And I visit her on the set, you know, a lot, and I just hang out, and I get to talking, get you know, I talk with Bill Malone a lot, you know, who's just the nicest and most generous man, and of course Mary, who's one of my agents, uh, you know, sells <laughs> me as a DP, you know, right away, and um, then Bill says, you know, you know, we need a bunch of stuff like inserts and just stuff, you know, and why don't you shoot it? And I'm saying, well, I'm here, you know, and he said, yeah, well, there's the UPM. Go, you know, get a bunch of guys and, and just start shooting stuff. You know, there's a little list somewhere. And so it just started shooting. It was little, probably little you, you do it or he does it, right? Well, yeah, they didn't have time. They had so many things to do. And, and so I shot a b- bunch of smaller things. And then they said, you know, oh, you know what? We need a, a shot in the hallway of our principals running by. You know, they're running away from so-and-so. And then so I, I had my camera and a bunch of guys. So we brought the camera over there and then they ran through frame. And so I ended up shooting a whole bunch of things. And um, Bill Malone and I hit it off. He's just, you know, a kind, uh, wacky, strange man with, you know, good humor, always kind and <laughs> always, always has has weird things that pop into his head. And and he said, you know, I need a few days. I need like three days of just creepy images, you know. And and I shot them for him when when principal principal photography was done. And I did weird stuff. I, I got mylar and reflected faces off the mylar, which I twisted. I know exactly, because I yeah. saw that movie in the theater. I've seen that oh, movie a few times, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. And so, you know, images that were distorting as you twisted the mylar that I reflected them from, I... Uh, yeah, you did the really disturbing stuff in that movie. Um, I did a lot. Uh, we shot stuff uh, at three frames per second, you know, where faces were shaking. Um, and that's really creepy. Um, I had uh, an old Arri 2C, which I still have. And I took the uh, the rotating mirror out of it, and took uh, a card, uh, not the sh- uh, the shutter. I had uh, I used my uh, Airy 2C, took the uh, shutter out, and um, replaced uh, it with a uh, a cardboard shutter that I had on a drill in front of the lens. <laughs> and so as we're aiming, I couldn't see because the the shutter is also a mirror that reflects uh-huh. the image into the eyepiece. So I couldn't see the image, but you know I could point at somebody. And uh, using the cardboard shutter in front of the lens with a drill, you know, and and, and alternating the speed of it, uh, we shot some stuff that looks really weird, you know, that just looked, that it looked all strange, you know. And that so sounds he, like fun, man. So he loved all that stuff that we did. And um, then, uh, were you were, were that was that the principal cast in that stuff, or was that just no? It, it was, was ghost people. Yeah, it was. I don't know. 
scary ghost yeah, stuff. Yeah, uh, extras and people yeah. that know. Uh, but we did that for three days. And uh, he said, you know, I love your stuff. It's all weird and creepy. And uh, <laughs> you're going to shoot my next movie. And I had had some experience already in Hollywood, you know, uh -huh. thinking, I don't know if you'll remember me, you know, when you're starting your next movie. We'll yeah, see. Yeah. You know, I didn't say that because it's so nice. And then suddenly I get a call, you know, is Bill Malone, you know, you got to shoot my movie. I'm in Luxembourg. And I'm thinking, Luxembourg is in Europe, you know, and uh, I got to get, you got to come out. And so I had an agent. My agent calls just to make sure that this is all like, that this is a movie. And so my agent made a deal and I got a plane ticket and I flew to Luxembourg and it was the movie fear.com. Which I also saw in the theater. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's a gorgeous film. I mean, like that's, it's really beautiful and, uh, and really creepy, but in a way that like a lot of movies weren't going into the kind of creepy look that you were going to. I think that, uh, you know, sometimes there, there's a, a belief with horror movies the same as there is with comedies. Like you'll always hear like with comedy, it doesn't need to look good. You know, just like point the camera at yeah. Adam Sandler and have him Not flounce around. Right. Well, I think that the great ones yeah. for obviously don't. And I feel the same way with yeah. horror movies. Yeah. Like, like there are horror movies that, that, you know, where it's like, they're like, ah, eh, who cares? 15 year olds are just going to watch this. Who cares? Right. But then when you see a movie like fear.com, there's just <clears> so much care that goes into every, mm. into every setup and the lighting and everything. Yeah. And, and it, and when I think about that movie, which I saw in the theater, I remember it was Stephen Ray was the lead, right? Yes. And it was, I remember him and I just remember the atmosphere and the yeah. atmosphere is really you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that was my first opportunity, you know, to really push the envelope on, mm -hmm. on my own project, not shooting additional photography for somebody else. And um, with uh, William Malone backing me up, it could be dark, you know, I could underexpose, I could just play. And we uh, didn't know if he would have a digital intermediate at that time, meaning if the film shot on 35 would be scanned uh, into the digital world or not, if we could afford that. But uh, Bill Malone and I were pushing for it because we knew that with all those dark images, um, the film would benefit from it because we were exposing, you know, on the edge, you know, where stuff uh, in, a, in a true, just in a film print, you know, would have probably been grainy and muddy. Yeah. And so uh, we did tests at Cinecide in London, uh, scanned the original negative, and they filmed it out the, uh, from the digital files and uh, you know, gave it a good contrast and made it snappy and gave it good colors. And we showed that to the uh, producers and uh, we realized you know, what we had. It was a very dramatic, very dark, but very clean look, mm -hmm. you know, where you could still feel that it was shot on film, you know, but it was a strong, it was really a good look. And uh, we were immediately given the green light you know, for a digital intermediate for the film. So that was that was before you shot it or you shot it and then that was uh, in the first week of, of photography or so. okay you know, so you, we were you still could have you still could have changed course if they were like hell we, no we could have yeah but but we didn't really want to yeah and so the other interesting thing and that i which i benefited greatly from was uh peter hyams had made a movie for the same company in luxembourg before us which was the three musketeers i believe or a three musketeers movie and uh, he was editing, uh, he was in post in London and saw uh, f a few weeks, two weeks into us shooting the footage, you know, and uh, he's, he just loved it. 
And so he cut a little trailer from our footage, you know, just for fun because he was bored. He was in editing, you know, and they were, as they were editing his stuff, you know, and he was sitting around. He took mm -hmm. our footage. Maybe it was more, th maybe we had been shooting for three weeks. And so he cut a little trailer uh, that he sent to us, and it was quite stunning, I must say. You know, the images were really strong. It looked really good. And um, our producers sent that to Warner, Warner Brothers, you know, where they had contacts. And um, Warner Brothers, you know, saw the material and they said, you know, we're going to distribute your film. So suddenly uh, we had a, a major distributor who made, who had made a commitment, you know, to buy this film. And uh, from then on, you know, things were, we were all in a pretty good mood because you don't know, you know, it was an independent movie. You know, it had a good, had a $20 million budget, but it was, yeah. you know, you, you want to know that it's going somewhere. And so with Peter Hyams' help, you know, uh, that was solidified. And so we had our digital intermediate secured, you know, Cinecite was on board. And that was my first experience on a, uh, what I would call a real movie. Like a theatrical distribution. Uh, a not only, you know, we got a wide release. Yeah. It was in like 2,400 theaters or so, which, which at the time was a very, very big release. Um, and that was a, a good step for my career. You for know. sure. And the cinematography is kind of one of the stars of that movie. It, it is, yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I did not write the script. And, you know, the script should have been, you know, polished a little bit more before we started. Roger Ebert even gave me good notes about the cinematography, which made me, you know, quite, quite happy, of course. Wow. Yeah, that was cool. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So that, that kind of kicks you into a different echelon of cinematographer at that point. Yes, that, that opened doors, and I don't know what the next projects were after that, but that opened doors. And uh, eventually, um, with the help of that and, and lots of other things, uh, I got hired to shoot CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, Yeah, um, and took over uh, for somebody else who was leaving in season eight, and I did that until the end of, uh, until 2015. You know, oh, wow. For seven years. Seven years on yeah. that show. And that was uh, quite an amazing experience for me. Well, and that is a show that has a very specific look. Yes, like uh, a very, a yeah. very beautiful look. But mm -hmm. like, there's, I don't. I, how would you describe the look that that? How did they describe the look to you mm. that they go for on that show? Um, <clears throat> of course, I didn't originate that look, you know, because this, mm -hmm. the show had uh, been already done 150, had done already 150 episodes or something. It's a glossy look, you know, there's a lot of dark yeah. light, you know, if, if you, I think if you turn the sound off and if you watch it today, you're going, you probably notice that, you know, you probably go, there's a hundred practicals in the shot and they're all tipped up a little bit, you know, and if you studied that and you would, you might say, that looks unrealistic and it looks silly. Then you watch it with the sound on and you get sucked into a dramatic story and there's, it's, there's gloss everywhere, lots of highlights yeah. and flares and you know, with a little diffusion or things are blooming. That's what I think about when I think about all of the CSI shows is that there's lots of highlights. There's, they're not afraid to let stuff burn out in the frame right, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Like, like there's, the, it's contrasty, I guess. It, it is very contrasty, but it's a, a, a pleasant contrast. Yeah, you know, Versus, slick. you know, contrast in a dark, you know, scary movie where you have contrast, but, but people don't look beautiful, you know. So that was my challenge. So I had to learn a little bit how, how it had been done before me, but eventually you catch on and, and um, one episode got me an Emmy. So, you know, I can't, <laughs> I can't complain about that run on that show. That was fantastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what's the change 
when you go from making features, you've primarily been making features since you got your, your feet wet in LA. Mm-hmm. You go from Corman, you go to Saban, mm-hmm. then fear.com and some other mm-hmm. features. Mm-hmm. And now you're doing television. What, what's the adjustment? What's the difference? What, what do you love about, about television versus features? What do you give up by doing television versus features? We have a uh, 10 year old son so about 10 years ago i stopped doing feature films because uh, i was too often out of the country out of state you know mostly gone for months and um when our son was born um until he was maybe a year and a half old or so i was still in the feature film business the last film i did was in new orleans i don't know what the title is robo sapien Robo Sapien. Yeah, so it was another kids movie that I really enjoyed working on with a, a friend of mine, Sean McNamara, who directed it. Uh, they changed the title when it was released. Um, so my f- my wife uh, and son came and visited me in New Orleans. Now we had a fantastic time. They were there for a week or two. But when I came back, you know, I I thought because television was getting stronger and stronger, you know, the shows were getting better and better visually. Um, I decided to see what I could get in Los Angeles, you know, to just stay home. And, um, you know, a bunch of projects showed up in LA and then, uh, of course, CSI. And with us living in Glendale and CSI being based at Universal um, with alternating DPs, which means one DP preps while the other shoots, you know, mm-hmm. the other finishes the shoot and then preps the next episode. It was quite uh, a fantastic job. You know, being able to prep, you know, find the right location, spend time with the director. I could not only uh, scout and figure out the best locations with the help of the director and the producers, but I would also be given a chance to go to color correction, um, you know, to uh, work on my last episode, you know, and we had an incredible colorist named Paul Westerbeck, who I believe had done the show since the very beginning and who look, who knew the look uh, of the show, you know, almost better than I did. And so I would make you know little 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 tweaks here and there. Uh, we would uh, always have flashbacks in every episode, and uh, we would always try to do something new and something different. And so he would help me uh, find those new looks, and that was quite educating for me as well. Uh, CSI, after I think over 350 episodes, uh, ended uh, early 2015, mm-hmm. and um, I had wanted to leave you know for several years, you not know, just creatively doing something different but it was such a good job you know it was well paid and I knew everybody I had become friends with so many people on the show that I stayed another year and then another year and then in a uh, twisted way I was kind of uh, happy when it ended in 2015 because it gave me an opportunity to move on and find something different but um, I still have a lot of friends there and after that uh, series came um, a season uh, of uh, Rush Hour for Warner Brothers, which is based on the Jackie Chan movies. And Warner Brothers, uh, of course, owns the, the feature film rights. And so they decided to uh, you know, do a, a television series with lots of comedy and action. And I did a series, uh, and I did a season, the first season, and I did, a, I, and I did the first season of that. Uh, the show was canceled after that because CBS uh, decided to um, wholly own their, their programming and not share it with a studio, <laughs> uh, which in a way makes sense. But um, that was also tremendous fun, you know, working uh, with a lot of action and comedy. So when you're, you're on a show like CSI for eight years, 
how do you keep it fresh for yourself? How do you keep challenging yourself? I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose after a while, you, you you probably a lot of people would go into autopilot. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's another scene where we're in a crime scene and we got the guy with the little signs that they're putting all over the place and and flashlights through smoke. But like, how, what do you do to, to, to keep it interesting for yourself? That's that's a really tough one. That's why I uh, wanted to leave, you know, after the first three or four years. But the job being such a great high profile job, you know, it would have been silly to to actually walk away. Um, so the, the actors pretty much in a show like that say the same same lines more or less in the same sets every episode they mm-hmm. stand in the so-and-so lab and they look at the bullet and they find little markings and they say <laughs> we got to figure out to you know if that other bullet has the same markings if it's the same gun they uh, find a hair on location and they hold up the hair and they say the, the same lines so you do repeat yourself because you can shoot sets only in so many ways there's a, there's a, a great angle and then there are lesser angles and then there's bad angles and so you try with camera movement and with you know maybe longer lenses or low and wide lenses to to shape the scene and make it exciting but you do repeat yourself yeah so to keep it um, somewhat interesting uh, we try to find ways to improve the sets for example every shot has a backlight on that show and so the backlights have to be hung and aimed at where the actor is standing and so there were certain sets now with a low ceiling where that was quite tricky and so finally i said guys let's just cut a big hole in the ceiling you know put a, a beam in front of it so we don't see the hole and and we can and we have a, a pole up there and we can hang the lights in seconds yeah and we don't have a flare because a, a, a the beam, uh, you know, protects the lens, and 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 so we would do stuff like that. You know, we would have to ask mm-hmm. the producers if they're cool with that, and they would come to the set, and I would say, we want to cut a big old hole in there, you know, and and explain to them this, the time savings, and they would say, yeah, that makes sense, okay, and so uh, we would find ways to improve um, the technical aspect of how to light something to make it easier, you know, or put lights in places where you couldn't put lights before. Uh, so that was fun and interesting, but you're still shooting a similar thing in the yeah. same sets you know, for forever and ever. So where I, um, what what was my big challenge was going on location. Every episode had big stuff on location in new places that we hadn't gone to before. Either it would be in the desert at night, uh, a, a helicopter chasing a pickup truck, you know, driving not 50 feet, but 5,000 feet. So how do we light that? How do we shoot you know, from the helicopter down at the same time as on the ground and finish this big chase in like three hours? Because we actually have dialogue and other stuff to shoot in the same night. You know, So we figured we should have three camera crews on the ground and space them out. You know, They're like 150 feet apart. And so as the truck being chased by the helicopter is driving through the desert you know within one take you know we get three different locations shot mm-hmm. you know, plus a camera in the helicopter and so then those three camera crews would move you know with a hop in a truck and just go 500 feet down and we would roll the next take and again we have you know multiple angles in the same you know in a very very quick amount of time and so we we really broke down what needed to be shot how it would be shot best and we would throw to a certain extent money at it you know getting a crane over there and then two crews and a little insert unit and, and figure out how to achieve something big and complicated 
on a TV schedule. And that's something where I learned a tremendous amount about being uh, prepared for a big scene and shooting it uh, in an efficient way. Did any of the Corman days come in handy at, at that point when you're trying to figure um, out how to cram a lot into, even though you have the money, <clears throat> time you can't make time slow down and you don't have enough money to go an extra day, so... Absolutely, uh, because at Corman's, um, where there was not that much money, you would figure out a way to shoot something very, very quickly and either steal it or or find a way to do it. I don't want to say in an illegal fashion, but you know, push the envelope a little bit and get it done and move on. And so that prepares you for a big project where even if there is money to get stuff done quickly. And so that helped, absolutely. Um, On something like CSI, you would have a lot of guest directors, I assume. Mm -hmm. So this is something I always wonder about with uh, episodic television directors, is that you're you're the DP, you've been on there for, you know, you were there for eight years, seven years. Mm -hmm. A director who's never directed CSI before, maybe hasn't even been on your set before, comes in. You know the angles that they're going to want. The director is sort of the ultimate arbiter of what what you're getting, what you're going to walk away with. The actors, for the most part, except for the guest stars, are going to already kind of know what their characters are. Mm-hmm. How do you work with a director on a, on an episode like that? And how much of the shot selection and the camera angles and the lens selection would you say is is mostly yours? A uh, a guest director on a big television show is is literally a guest, you know. So um, he or she can. Uh, write down write a shot list can ask for certain shots but if they're unusual shots that don't fit the uh, the look and the style of the show the dp will say you know that's not really what we do mm-hmm. and um the director will um if he or she wants to you know be able to finish the episode and you know maybe come back probably listen to the dp you know especially somebody who's been there for a while and so we had several directors uh, where i would say you know I, I would shoot it from here. You know, you get a better background. You have windows, you have backlight, you have contrast. Now, if you shoot it from here into the wall, it won't look very good. And it's not really the style of the show. And the director would normally immediately say, you're right, let's look this way. We have contrast yeah. now. So I think uh, a smart guest uh, on the set uh, is, is very willing to listen to the DP. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one director who um, insisted on, on shooting stuff frontlit in, in the desert, and um, I had not been there very long, and I let him do it, and I got yelled at, you know, by the producers. The producers said, no, you're representing us on the set. Don't allow stuff that's not our style, you know, and they were right. I made a mistake. Yeah. yeah, and I have to say the director never came back. He did, he never directed any of the CSIs, you know, the, the original that I was on, or New York, or Miami. Mm-hmm. After that, yeah, he was he had he was the wrong guy, and he proved it to all of us. And he was uh, headstrong, and you know, got us in trouble. And um, it was the end of his career in that world. Maybe for Bruckheimer, who knows? Interesting. Yeah. So, um, as a DP, you want to help them too. You know, you want to make sure that they succeed. You know, because they're going to move on. You move on. You know, you you want to make as many friends in the industry as you can, as long as you like them. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, so this kind of brings me to another one of the. I don't always ask this question, but I think it's an interesting thing to understand. If you were going to grow a director in a laboratory to be the perfect director to complement how you like to work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I don't mean this to be a gotcha question, but it's like, what is it that you ultimately want from a director? What is most comfortable for you to provide the director? Obviously, there are some directors who are maybe more actor and script focused and they're less camera savvy. Would you prefer to work with someone like that who gave you a little bit more of the of the sanction to come up with the coverage, come up with the angles? Would you prefer to come and work with someone who has really strong ideas and collaborate? Like what's mm-hmm. what's ideal for you? Um, it's more fun for me if the uh, director has a strong visual uh, imagination and also knows how to express that, you know, to actually say, I want a 14 on the, the ground. I want to see tons of ceiling, you know, and I want to be moving to make it, you know, uh, give it an energy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fun for me because I'm then I'm saying he or she has an idea, you know, what, what this should feel like. Yeah. And uh, let's go get the right tools to put the lens right on the deck. And, and dolly it or, or crane it so that that's a lot of fun but um, if it's a director who doesn't have that capability and there's a, a lot of them who can't even express what their what their images are that they're seeing in their mind then I'll help them you know so I, I'm I'm okay with both what I what I'm what I absolutely require f- uh, from a director is to be totally prepared and totally know the material totally know what the scene is about what the characters are about what what's happening in a scene and I've worked with directors who, who were, were lazy and who showed up on the set and they're reading the scene and and the AD and I are going why is he reading the scene it's 7 a.m. we're in everybody's standing around and the director's reading the scene mm-hmm. he's not familiar with what's happening in the scene he doesn't know what what people what what characters are in the scene and what they're saying so I prefer somebody who's who's there early who says okay this is what we're gonna do guys I want to be wide. I want to look through the window. I want to dolly here, and then I, if I have an idea that I think would make those ideas stronger, or would be a good alternative, you know, to his or her ideas, then I can say, why don't we take the second camera and go really long? You know, we'll put the camera 20 feet back. You know, go to a 300 and dolly through all the foreground and give you your wide angle. You know, that that sets the stage, and so we know where we are, and it's a cool shot. And then we go to this very, very long lens, you know, where we are on a close-up, on the eyes, and we see what this guy's thinking. And so then hopefully the director will say, I love that. You know, so I get my shot and you get your shot and and I have two strong shots that fit the scene. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I also just I feel like I would personally be remiss if I did not ask you about Resident Evil Apocalypse. Because I not only did I see that movie, but I feel like in addition to Fear.com, when I think mm-hmm. of your work, mm-hmm. it, it's very different from Fear.com. It's very, it's, it's very glossy. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of wanted to ask you about that because the Resident Evil, uh, that was like the third or fourth one, I think. Um, yeah, I had known Alexander Witt, the director of Resident Evil Apocalypse, uh, for a very long time. I met him in Munich, Germany when I was still there. And um, he was not a big famous DP or director DP uh, like he is now um, but uh, he always wanted to direct a movie and he had worked him his way up uh, to one of the biggest second unit directors that we have uh, at least in the United States you know, doing James Bond and all these big movies and he had known the producers from the uh, Resident Evil uh, projects uh, for a while from a German company called Konstantin Film and had told me, and he said, no, uh, they're going to offer me the next Resident Evil movie. And I said, you got to call me. That would be my dream, you know, to work with you on a big, dramatic action film. And uh, then he called and said, no, yeah, we're starting. We're going, uh, we're going to be in Toronto, Canada. But uh, there's a local DP that has been hired uh, by the, the uh, local producers. 
and he felt bad about it. But maybe as a first-time director, didn't have the uh, the power uh, to reverse that decision, and so uh, that person started the movie. Then, uh, uh, after a, a short period of time, had to leave to do something else, and he called and said, "No, the job's available. Uh, come on up." And so I got called on Friday, and Monday morning I was uh, shooting. I didn't oh, wow. have any prep, and so I took over for this man who left uh, for another film. And um, literally every day, you know, before uh, the call, and you know, in the morning, it was all at night. In the morning, when I would, you know, on my way to the hotel, I would go scouting, you know, to see the locations and figure out, you know, the scope and what we needed. And um, had a blast, had a ball, you know. I mean, uh, shooting with, with a lot of money, it was like $45 million budget. Yeah. Uh, with a, uh, a second unit that was bigger than many movies I had shot. You know, <laughs> was, was, that was gigantic, the crew and the, uh, the stunt, stunt people and, and, and everything. And so that was, that was um, you know, big time for me suddenly. And I don't own the movie because I didn't shoot the whole thing, you know, but I learned a lot and I did uh, some of the really, really big stuff in the film. You know, that was a tremendous experience. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because I really think that that movie's outrageously visual. Yeah. And the lighting and the camera and the way it all mm-hmm. works. is and, and to find out that you didn't have really any prep time. No prep. Uh, how, do you, how do you drop yourself into a situation with no prep like that? I mean, how do you, how do you get into the groove of what they're doing? Were you, were you familiar with it beforehand and then they just weren't able to bring you on board? Had you done any prep originally? When, no. when the- no prep. I never did any prep. Mm-hmm. I showed up and uh, I was called on Friday and I think the next day on Saturday I probably flew up to Toronto mm-hmm. and met with the producers and uh, Alexander Witt, the director, and uh, they m- probably showed me a bunch of the big uh, upcoming locations. Um, and they had also built gigantic sets that I looked at. And um, you know, by that time I had plenty of experience and I could uh, just walk into a place, you know, during like the night before and could say, you know, guys, we need backlight, you know, we gotta get a big light up there and a big light up there. And um, in the short time that the other DP had started the project, um, enough uh, rental companies had been uh, involved in the project that everything was um, at my disposal. You know, so when we needed, let's say, two or three hundred twenty-foot lighting units, you know, we would just call and they would show up. You know, we nothing had to be pretty know, sweet. There were no negotiations. Or anything. Nice. We would just call and they would show up. And so um, that I think made it possible that they had been shooting big stuff already. You know, that where I could say we need this. We had a bridge night exterior, needed 55Ks, you know, and so they got 55Ks and they were just somehow, they wrecked them and, you know. <laughs> so was the fact that you were kind of dropped into it, was that a, was that a headache for you or was it more like a fun, crazy challenge? Um, it was nerve wracking and it was a, a fun, crazy challenge. You know, I like challenges. I, I'm, I'm never uh, satisfied when I'm on the set and, and there's no challenge, there's nothing complicated, there's nothing yeah. that... You know, makes me think. How do we do that? Um, <laughs> so I'd rather work on something that's complicated. Doesn't matter if it's low budget or no budget or big budget. Something that that that's interesting. You know, where I go, where I, where I have to think. You know, where mm-hmm. I have to problem solve. And so that was all problem solving all day long. And some of it was nerve wracking. Not not only because um, I had so little time to think about it, but also it was so dangerous. You know, we had two night exteriors were for four or five hours each night. We had three helicopters in the middle of Toronto uh, in front of City Hall 
which we uh, which is a circular building it looks like a spaceship and we uh, built an extra building uh, in front of it that we exploded the left half one yeah. night with one camera ship one uh, you know space cam i think helicopter <laughs> and then two picture helicopters um and we we lit 360 every every building you know in in downtown uh, toronto was lit but I also had to make sure we could see the the black helicopters. They were completely black, and a black helicopter in a you know black night sky. That's really not a not a nice scenario for an yeah. EP. <laughs> um, and nothing could be repeated. You know, this could only be exploded once. And uh, there was a a big flagpole in the middle that couldn't be removed. You know, it was cemented in or something. So we had to put per Canadian FAA rules a big blinking light on it. And, and it was nerve-wracking because the helicopters couldn't see that thing very well. And then we were all just going, we don't want an accident. You know, nothing can ever happen this night. And uh, the, the uh, Japanese uh, people from, uh, uh, I think, Tokyo came who, were, who invented the game. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's what I was told. So there was a whole bunch of Japanese guys there, you know, watching in awe <laughs> of the uh, complete insanity that seemed to be happening. <laughs> like it was so much easier us. when it was just a 3D rendered pixel thing. No kidding. Created in the computer. And we had uh, 14 cameras, uh, which was also quite a challenge to make sure that everybody was doing the right thing, that they were put in the right place, that the exposure was correct, that the camera speed was correct, and so on, that there were enough ACs you know, to make sure everything was plugged in and the batteries were fresh. So those those two nights were nerve-wracking just because of the danger factor and it was so big and uh, but it it worked you know the producers were fantastic and so after a week or so i got into it and i i you know there was less less um nervousness you know because i knew the crew i could i could actually call out their names you know when you <laughs> show up on day one and take over a show and you don't know anybody you have yeah, no you're, idea you're the new the guy gaffer? Who, who do i talk to about putting a camera over there if you need a techno crane over there well, where, where's the techno crane guy? and there isn't like a hospitality person on crew who goes around and introduces the new people to the to everyone and make sure you know everybody mm-hmm. like well, you kind of have to figure it out on your own for a while you, you do i mean the the producers you know introduced me to like the stunt coordinator you know who was terrific the the uh, special effects person and so on but i mean there's so many you yeah know, that, that on a not, film like that yeah easy you know there's so many how people. many people are on a crew for a for a 40 million dollar movie like that in canada i have no idea Hundreds, probably. Uh, yeah, certainly, yeah, because it was two big crews, yeah. first and second unit. I got a little bit of a taste of being on a big movie when we had uh, a night exterior on a bridge in Toronto for two nights. Um, we need the, the, the bridge was dark and didn't look very interesting, so I said, "No, we should put lights on the bridge." And I knew, you know, we might do high speed, and so I said, "They can't be little two Ks," and so I said, five Ks. Let's get fifty-five Ks." Um, and then I thought it would be fun to put a color on them. And so I went through my little book and I picked a color that I thought would be cool for this type of film. And I said to the uh, company, you know, we need that color for the 55 case. And only much, much later did I find out that that color didn't exist in Canada. So it had to be flown in. And I'm thinking, oh, shoot, man, I, w- I would have picked a different color. <laughs> That's like in town. my first big movie and and they made some calls and it was flown in overnight and and then we would shoot on the bridge at night 
but the uh, bridge had to be open during the day. You know, so there was a big set blocking the whole bridge and there were my 55 case. So during the day, the 55 case had to be gone, all the cabling had to be gone and the big set piece that, that was blocking the road had to be removed. You know, so that was a massive challenge. So you even just production. had a, a day crew that you never even saw that were handling yes, all those it was, logistics. Yeah, it was huge, yeah, because the, the bridge apparently connects you know, two important parts of Toronto and, and you know, the city said, okay, you can have it at night, you know, but we got to have like <laughs> a 10-hour window during the day. You know, of course. You can actually drive on that thing. <laughs> <clears throat> and because I had, you know, again, so little prep, I assumed that... Uh, at least in one direction, we wanted to have some big backlight, and uh, uh, one angle didn't need it because we had uh, a set piece with built-in lighting. But the other direction, I said, you know, let's get one of the big 120-foot units over there. And uh, only when I showed up did I realize that there was no place to put it. You know, the only place to put it was down below by the by the river bank or whatever that was, and it was way too low. We couldn't even turn it on. So we use it as a work light, you know, at 5 a.m. You know, when we had to wrap all the lights and everything really quickly. Oh. So that was a very, very expensive work light. <laughs> the other thing that is a similar story, we had a uh, a very large cemetery scene uh, with uh, Mila Jovovich. Um, but it was, I think, three hours away from Toronto or so, you know, very large cemetery. And uh, they showed me stills. And I said, again, I said, you know, I need the biggest light you can get, you know, that we can raise up and <clears throat> and illuminate this large area. But he couldn't scout it. It was two, it was a six hour round trip. And so uh, I arrived and I realized that the, uh, the, the trees were so dense that even with a light that would have been 400 feet, it would have been impossible to light the area. So <clears throat> the only thing I could come up with to create uh, light for a larger space was to take this 120-foot light, put it all the way down with its 16 4Ks or 6Ks or whatever it was, and actually have it on the ground and just shoot it through the trees uh, to get some light going. So again, I used the light that wasn't really supposed to be used that way, but the producers understood, you know, because I just couldn't scout that it, stuff. It, it comes across as stylish, yeah. though. Like, it comes across yeah, yeah, as stylized. And, you know, we all made it work, but um, uh, lack of prep, you know, makes you invent things in a way that, you know, you should get fired in certain <laughs> circumstances. And, you know, they knew that I was, you know, <laughs> stuck. And so... That's great, though. That's a great story. So I, I think that that's, that's about it. So uh, where can people find you online if they want to see your work? Um, the easiest is probably uh, on my website, which is uh, sebalt-asc.com. And sebalt is spelled S-E-B-A-L-D-T, and it's uh, hyphen asc.com. Thank you so much for coming out. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you. So that was Christian Sebalt, everybody. Thanks again for coming in, Christian. Thank you very much. So uh, who is our war story today from Ilya? It's Jim Froma. Jim Froma of all the Jill Soloway shows of all time, DP of uh, Transparent and I Love Dick, just one of the one of the more interesting guys working in the business today. And you know, you we get we kind of get to hear his origin story, which is actually pretty fun because uh, he was a gaffer for a long time yeah. and uh, he got a, a good break on a Sony commercial which, Oh, don't speak. He's about to tell us. Okay, I know he's about to tell us, but all you right. know, don't I, speak. <laughs> Don't speak. Jim Froma. Jim Froma. And now, war stories. 
After a certain amount of time gaffing, I started getting opportunities to do B camera or an additional camera on commercials and could feel this thing rising up in me like I could maybe do that someday. Along came this huge job in San Francisco for Sony Bravia TVs where we launched something like 250,000 Super Bowls down the steep streets of San Francisco. I was hired by this longtime DP I worked for to be there as gaffer and camera operator. The night before we were going to start shooting, the DP had to leave for a family emergency. I had been just involved enough with the prep and in the war room or the you know conference room, figuring out where all the cameras, all eight cameras were going to be, that at the point in the night when he got the call and had to leave, I was suddenly the one in the room who knew the camera plan. I looked at the producer and AD and said, I could shoot this. And they conferred and came back out and said, all right, you're gonna be the DP. So there I was sitting in my hotel room wondering, am I gonna be able to do this? There are 24 people in the camera department I'm going to, you know, wake up in four hours because I couldn't sleep and, you know, show up on set and they're going to say, oh, what happened? You're the DP. And from showing up on set to when we launched the first air cannons of all these Super Bowls, this magnificent, you know, downpour of Super Bowls in San Francisco, I was panicking. But once the, the first launch was done and how much fun I was having and how I was able to communicate so easily with the camera operators and be myself and make creative decisions in the moment. I had this, you know, rush of exuberance, joy, possibility, whatever, and, and this voice inside me saying, well, if you can handle this, I think you're ready to be a DP. Now, short ends. Well, that was Jim Froma's war story. Look forward to Jim Froma's entire interview on our next episode, which will be forthcoming sooner, thanks to the addition of our new producer, Alana Cody. Thank you, Alana. Hey, and uh, we should also give a quick shout out to Mike, because Mike is killing it, doing some editing, and he thinks he might even have someone else who'd like to do some editing for us. He does? Yes. If you if you answered Alana's email, you'd know about that. I didn't answer her email. No, you missed it. Oh. So. I've been, it's been a busy couple of weeks for me. See, you know, that, that's the thing about now having a producer, we're going to be held accountable. I appreciate being held accountable. So thank you, Alana, for holding me accountable. And I'm sorry that I didn't get back to you about that other editor. I got to mention the Alexa mini one more time. It's just amazing. I was just looking at it out on the showroom floor and it's an amazing camera and I'm going to start keeping track of what shows are using Alexa mini. So tell me a few things about the Alexa mini that, that maybe people don't know if they haven't put their hands on the Alexa mini. Okay, well, it's like someone took an Alexa and like sawed it in half. So it's really, really small and it's really, really light, although it has all the power and performance of a full-size Alexa. So how, how much would you say the Alexa Mini weighs once you put a lens on it, for instance? Uh, I don't know. Under 10 pounds, for sure. Probably six, seven pounds, depending on the lens. For certain circumstances, you might want a full-size Alexa, especially if you're going to be on studio sort of dollies all the time mm -hmm. then it's great to have the to have all that extra stuff that comes along with it but well, I, I find that having a, a a heftier camera means that you treat it a little bit differently and you know so you might move it differently you might move it with more deliberation whereas you know if you're shooting on a smaller camera you you might your the handheld is going to look different 
Sure. Absolutely. It's, it's not the same. In fact, it's a lot harder to operate a really small camera, but, uh, but they've really kind of struck a nice balance with the Alexa mini. It's, it's extremely cool. Can you talk about the price point of that camera? Sure. It's about $40,000. So it's not on the cheap end of the spectrum, but compared to a full size Alexa SXTW, then yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a bargain. How much is how much is the full size Alexa? Uh, you're looking in the seventy eighty thousand dollar range, depending on what sort of features and functions and which, things you need. Which, by the way, I'd like to point out that when you and I first got into the business, like an Airy SR two sixteen millimeter film camera, just the camera cost probably I think those cost like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh yeah, like professional gear costs money, and you're getting real value for that money. And, you know, it's not to say don't go make a movie on a DSLR, but if you had the choice between that and something like an Alexa, you're going to see the difference in all of your footage. And, and you know, uh, both the prices I'm quoting for the the Mini and the SXTW, that is really body only. There is quite a bit more expense that goes along with it to make it functional. I mean, yeah, I don't believe either comes with a lens mount. You have to buy a lens mount these days. The, the way that all the camera manufacturers are doing it is basically a la carte. So really, uh, you've got to add at least 20, 30%, usually more than the price of the camera to get all of the stuff that you need. But that's just the world we live in these days. And if you want the top end performance, you have to pay a top end price, generally speaking. Also, I feel like, and, and I've talked about this a lot. I feel like part of our filmmaking culture has shifted into this weird space where it's all about owning, like being an owner operator and owning and owning and owning. And yeah, you can, you can get like halfway competent stuff to make, you know, YouTube videos. But when you go to make real serious stuff, the gear that you're going to want, you're usually going to be renting that gear anyway. And so you're not permanently dropping that money into it. You're let, you're going to a facility that has it. You're working with professionals and it's, it's professional gear for, you know, for those kinds of people. And it, and it brings a different kind of look and feel to your production and it really does kind of notch you up significantly, I think. Well, the way that professionals work, it's highly efficient. Generally speaking, I mean, professionals who know what they're doing, despite how complicated or how difficult the day is, they approach it with, uh, you know, precision that they're able to move quickly from one thing to another. An amateur or entry-level gear doesn't always offer that to you. You no. have to have, if you've got a person whose job it is just to make sure that this one area of their purview is under control, like a first AC or a second AC or anything like that, you cannot be wasting times fiddling around with things that don't work. You have to have something that is reliable and works the same way every time. Yep. That's Ari. Cool. So we, uh, we, we need to talk about our short ends. That's right. So Ben, what is your short end this week? My short end this week is uh, an SVOD platform called Shutter, which uh, of course it is. Yeah, yeah. Shutter <laughs> is basically Netflix for horror movies, and if you get, you can get it for a year, if you get it, if you pay for the full year at once, it's about four dollars a month. And uh, I'm like going through. It's like it's like reliving my teenage years of hanging out in video stores and being in the horror section and seeing all these movies that I'm like, I wonder what, like the other night I watched a movie called burial ground from 1981 that I'd never seen before. And I'd seen that video box as a VHS box at the video store. And I was like, I wonder what the hell that is. And, and uh, finally I watched it and it's bananas. I'm here to just tell you it's, it's, it's insane. It has, there's a, a man in it who is clearly in his mid to late twenties who's, but he's, very diminutive 
playing just a 10 year old boy, like, and just everyone accepts it. And then the filmmaker decided to, on top of that, add all these weird Oedipal things mm-hmm. with this character. And it's in the middle of a zombie movie. There's a, there's a zombie that I swear <laughs> is just like a Boris Karloff looking Frankenstein mask that someone's like glued some extra crap onto. But I love that. But also they had, um, we've talked about Don Coscarelli because uh, oh, Chris, yes. Chris Coman and sh- had shot several films for him. So his, it's actually, I kept saying it was his first feature. It's actually his second or third feature, but he made it when he was 19. Phantasm. Oh, yeah. The first Phantasm. They did a 4K restoration of it recently Ooh. that was done by J.J. Abrams. So, wow. So I'm just, I'm just saying like J.J. Abrams, you know, one of the top people in the business, loves Phantasm. Never heard of it. As much as I do. <laughs> and and uh, got Bad Robot to do this restoration. But uh, I bet it's spectacular. I mean, I'm sure that they asked him because he probably has as much love for it as you do. Yeah, exactly. And and that's what's cool about Shudder. And I think that there's a lot of these SVODs coming down the pike. Although um, <laughs> there was one that I had a meeting with, a, not Shudder. It was a different SVOD that I had a meeting, uh, a pitch meeting about a feature that they were looking to do. Mm. And I thought the script was really good. And I was very excited and had a great meeting with them. And then literally yesterday I found out that this SVOD is closing up and laying off everybody. Oh. And I'm like, well, I guess I won't be making that feature. Uh, at least not for them. I'm but sorry to hear that. But Shudder like is one of those things where like all my horror buddies were like, you got to check it out. And it really is just like full of every kind of horror movie going back to like silent horror, like Nosferatu and Phantom of the Opera and stuff like that. I just had a vision of you and your horror buddies all hanging out and like one of them's dressed like Freddy. One of them's just like Jason. One of them's just like Mike Myers. No, no dude, horror people all have kind of a uniform. I'm sort of wearing it right now. It's like oh, really? s- some that, kind of a black the horror uniform. It's like a black t-shirt and jeans. Uh, some, <laughs> uh, some people will have like some, something on the black t-shirt. A lot of them dye their hair. That's not me. A lot of them will have like a, you know, pierced cheek or something. I'm not one of those. Um, but, uh, you go to the Fangoria weekend of horrors, which I know you, you can't wait to do. I, I didn't know I, actually, it was a thing. Actually, I don't even know if they're still doing it, but, um, but if you go to a horror convention, you, you'll, you'll see, uh, a, a lot of people who really do look like they all commiserated and made sure that they wore uh, matching uh, clothes. So, uh, what is your, I, I actually know what your short end is, you know and, it is and it's, and it's fascinating. So please talk about it. Uh, it's called the shepherd's tone. What the hell is the shepherd's tone? Well, uh, is that like a shepherd's pie? Not at all. Okay. But, um, you will probably put some of that in right here if it's not already playing. But the oh no, I, I hear it. No, I hear. I hear oh, it in the distance. Yeah, yeah. You there hear that? It oh, it sounds like it sounds like a low tone that's getting higher and higher. Yeah, and that's higher. interesting. And it's an auditory illusion. What's what? happening is that tone seems to get higher and higher forever, but it's actually on a loop, and your brain is hearing some tones right now, and it is fooling you into thinking this is getting higher, but it's actually not, and it's looping over and over and over again, and there's a very cool website you can go to, which is mynoise.net forward slash noise machines forward slash shepherd audio illusion tone generator dot php. Uh, we'll put a link to that on our camera Good website. God. But anyway, you can go and then play and create your own shepherd's tone, which is... Can you like download it and use it in your own stuff? I'm pretty sure that you've got to have some sort of like audio recording thing. But you know, if you've got a Mac, you know, QuickTime does that. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. To as long as it'll this. let me export the tone I make because, well... You can, there's a way for you to record it. I'm, I'm sure that there is. Whether or not the website does it, the fact that it actually cre- allows you to do it is awesome. But you were telling me like this is like something that's like... Most notably, you will hear it in every Christopher Nolan movie ever made. Oh, I wasn't telling you that. You were telling me that. Oh, that's true. 
<laughs> and 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 herein I, lies I, the I, fallacy I'm of doing my, a bit. my I'm, short I'm, end. So I'm, thank you for putting thank you for for telling me how I know all about Chris Nolan and, and doing this. But but really, you're the one who knows about Chris Nolan, and then you're the one who who, who told me about this. But I did just find <laughs> the website, is and the website is awesome. So yes, and uh, now that you've pointed it out, I will now pay extra close attention to that. And I believe I have heard this before in several movies. And it's kind of funny that Google autocomplete said Shepard Tone Dunkirk before I found anything else when I first put that in there. So clearly it was used in it's, Dunkirk. It's, it's in like, I think every Christopher Nolan movie, at least starting with like The Dark Knight it's like or, a, or a Batman Begins, I mean. It's like a Wilhelm scream. Yeah, yeah. Although I feel like this, like the Wilhelm, you know, I at first when I first heard about the Wilhelm scream, I was fascinated by it. And then I started putting it in stuff, and then I started realizing that it's like the joke that everyone's in on that's not really a joke anymore. It's true. It was br- it was brilliant in like Star Wars, and now it's just kind of a hacky thing to do. I agree. I, I think that when you you know it it was in it was in it's been in Looney Tunes, it's been in tons of stuff over the years, and now it's just I think it's in it's Kill Bill. Uh, I think it's in almost every I think it's in every Quentin Tarantino movie made since Reservoir Dogs so yeah I mean there's nothing wrong with using it anyway so but we're not here to talk about the Wilhelm screen that's, no that's different that's a whole different thing yeah but, but you're right it's it's one of those things so so Ben I think we've reached that time again I think we've actually made it to the end of our show that's amazing it's made every time it feels like it was never going to happen it's kind of like a marathon and we, <laughs> we crossed the finish line Finally, 26.2 stickers going on my car. Nice. I don't know what that means. Oh, okay. so, Only the marathoners will know that. So. I don't get it. So uh, so uh, how can people find you in, in the internet world? Uh, you can find me at hotrodcameras.com. And you can also find us at uh, the official website of the Cinematography Podcast, which is camnoir.com. That's pretty sweet. Everybody go to Cam Noir and uh, yeah. Um, you can find me at Neptune Salad on Twitter at Benjamin underscore Rock on Instagram because some asshole got n- at Neptune Salad on Instagram before I had a chance. And you couldn't do Benjamin Rock without the underscore. Someone else had that too. You relate to the party. I don't know. I don't know. It was probably a bad idea. This is a painful episode. Yeah, it was all kinds there's of. There's a lot stuff. of. There's, I'm, it's very confessional on my it's part. On we. <laughs> it's a very sad week. And then, uh, yeah, um, also we want to give a big shout out to Mike Wilbanks who edited this episode. He so sure did. Thank you, Mike. And you can find him at lumospictures.com. Uh, also, Kay's Alatrachi, who did all of the music for this episode. You can find him at musicbykays.com, and that's where you should hire him and have him score your next thing. That's right. He, and, he likes doing that. And lastly, we want to thank Alana Cody for, oh com- for coming on board as our producer. Yeah, we're getting it, to be like a regular grown-up podcast where we have to thank 27 fucking yeah, people. This is going to go to her head. She's been thanked three times this episode. Well, you know, I think that she deserves three thanks for all the work that she's doing because it's <laughs> it's fucking thankless work. It is. And she puts up with me. All yeah. right. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again later. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.